0: Chapter Five: Vietnam, the Advisory Years to 1965, by Robert Frutrel and Martin Blumenson. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Cat Din in Osaka, Japan. Chapter Five: Strained Civil-Military Relations in South Vietnam, 1957 to 1960. President Yim visited Washington in May 1957. Among other matters, he wished American support for an army of 170,000 men and 10 divisions. Although Elbridge DuBrow, ambassador to Vietnam, believed that a military establishment this large would be a drain on the Vietnamese economy, President Eisenhower seemed to give tacit approval when he and Yim issued a joint communique. The two countries would continue to work for a peaceful unification of Vietnam, and the United States would support South Vietnam against communist encroachment. By 1958, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam was a force of 150,000 men organized into seven infantry divisions, one small brigade, and five territorial regiments. Nguyen had released the army from internal security duties to permit intensive field training. General Williams, the MAAG chief, was confident that these troops could deter North Vietnam from Orthodox military attack. They could delay an invasion for 15 days before falling back to Da Nang, where they could hold out for 30 days more. Presumably, outside assistance would have arrived by then to launch a counteroffensive or to defend the Saigon-Mekong Delta area. But whether the Vietnamese ground forces could eliminate subversion and insurgency had yet to be seen. While extraordinary priority was given to developing the army, only passing attention was accorded the Vietnamese Air Force. For it was regarded as incapable of playing a substantial role in larger CETO operations. Instead, it was to deal with minor operations, mainly to give tactical support to ground activity in the country through airlift, paradrops, visual and photo reconnaissance, and medical evacuation. Planning for the Vietnamese Air Force had begun in January 1955 when General Collins, focusing chiefly on the Vietnamese Army, explained that South Vietnam would rely for the most part on CITO air support. The Vietnamese Air Force was to have an initial strength of 3,000 men, organized in two liaison squadrons and one air transport squadron, a small air force that would be used for liaison purposes, observation, and adjustment of fire, that kind of thing. Later, another transport squadron and a fighter squadron were to be added. Few MAAG spaces were allocated to USAF advisors, For the French were to organize and train the Vietnamese Air Force. U.S. aircraft deliveries to Vietnam in August 1955, under the Mutual Defense Assistance Program, equipped the Vietnamese Air Force with aircraft and material released by the French—28 F-8F fighter-bombers, 35 C-47 transports, and 60 L-19 planes. When the French returned excess h 19 helicopters to American custody, They were transferred to Vietnam for airlift and air rescue missions. Because French officers had commanded Vietnamese air units, Vietnamese pilots gained little command experience. Vietnamese Army officers were therefore permitted to transfer to high-level Air Force posts. Despite difficulties in securing sufficient qualified personnel, VNAF units were created. The 1st Air Transport Squadron came into being at Thun Son Nhất on July 1, 1955, with C-47s. It was organized a year later as the 1st Air Transport Group, consisting of the 1st and 2nd Air Transport Squadrons and 32 C-47s. The Vietnamese took over the Nha Trang Training Center on July 7, 1955, and using L-19s, formed the 1st and 2nd Liaison Squadrons. The French conducted an F-8F transition course at Cap Saint-Jacques, Tau Airfield, and on July 1, 1956, the 1st Fighter Squadron was born at Binh Hoa and assigned 25 F-8Fs. Apart from these aircraft afforded by military assistance funds, the Vietnamese Air Force operated a special air mission squadron at Tân Sơn Nhất having one L-26 Aero Commander light transport, three C-47s, and three Beechcraft C-45s. Created without helicopters at Tân Sơn Nhất on June 1, 1957, the first helicopter squadron flew with the French unit that served the International Control Commission. When the French left in April 1958, they gave their 10 XS H-19s to the Vietnamese. While the French presence officially ended in April 1956, the Vietnamese government continued to contract with France for Air Force training. This arrangement left the USAF officers assigned to MAAG with few duties. They advised, when requested to do so, tried to stay abreast of programs and underwent some special training in the United States. When the French turned over the depot at Binh Hoa to the Vietnamese and suddenly withdrew their supply advisors, Air Force personnel informally filled the vacuum. In November 1956, the French agreed to relinquish their training functions to USAF advisors, and after 1957, Yim refrained from renewing training contracts with France. On June 1, 1957, complete responsibility for Vietnamese aviation assistance passed to the United States. American advisors discovered that Vietnamese air officers were fairly good pilots, yet young and relatively inexperienced. Very few appeared to have mastered basic concepts of how to employ aircraft against any enemy. Consequently, the Vietnamese army dominated the Joint General Staff, and frequently President Yim himself directed air missions. Yim preferred airborne operations over airstrikes, for the latter often endangered innocent people. Above all, he favored ground operations. Weak in command and staff experience, the Vietnamese Air Force suffered especially in logistic support. Teams from the Southern Air Material Area Pacific, based in the Philippines during 1957-58, to 58, converted French systems to the USAF procedures. Still, the F-8Fs, old Navy fighters worn out when the French transferred them, presented insoluble problems. The Vietnamese possessed limited maintenance skills, and spare parts were in short supply. In October 1958, when word came that armed T-28 trainers would replace the F-8Fs, the Vietnamese were disappointed. They wanted jet aircraft because the Thais, Filipinos, and Chinese nationalists had them. But the Geneva Accords prohibited the introduction of jets, and on the ground of maintenance alone, MAAG felt that the Vietnamese establishment was not sophisticated enough to handle them. By mid-1956, American aid built a 7,200-foot runway at Tân Sơn Nhất South Vietnam's international airport. The U.S. International Cooperation Administration next started work on another concrete runway, this one 10,000 feet long. Though the French in 1953-54 had laid a NATO-standard 7,800-foot asphalt runway at Da Nang, there were no runway lights or maintenance buildings. The depot at Binh Hoa featured permanent warehouses and hangars, but its pierced steel runways could not be greatly expanded. The French had also operated a 5,900-foot pierced steel runway at Cap Saint-Jacques. Even so, the airfield was stripped of necessary facilities at the time F-8F transition training ended. At all of these airfields, the Vietnamese Air Force looked to the Vietnamese Army for air maintenance, ordnance, quartermaster, signal, and other specialized support. Yet all seemed to be going smoothly enough. Secretary of State Dulles could say in 1958 that the communist process of trying to pick up one country after another has been pretty well brought to a stop by our collective defense treaties around the world, which give notice that the Soviets cannot attack one without everybody coming to its defense. In other words, the American threat of massive retaliation and the collective free-world defensive alliances were preserving the peace in Southeast Asia. In South Vietnam, there was incipient trouble, certain conditions enhanced enemy efforts to disrupt life the abolition of elected village councils in june 1956 the use of a compulsory labor as a tax in kind experiments in forced resettlement maladroit attempts to turn peasants into landholders and other measures promoted discontent in the countryside the absence of police in many rural areas a scarcity of civil servants on local levels and the inability of new and hastily organized paramilitary forces To substitute for an effective constabulary badly handicapped the saigon government in dealing with guerrillas who exploited dissatisfactions of one sort or another by 1958 many persons wedded to the unification of vietnam under control of the north were ready to launch immediately an armed struggle to sustain the communist movement and to secure its forces in the south in september 1958 north vietnam proposed to south vietnam an understanding on peaceful relations the yim government declined the offer because communist guerrillas in south vietnam had kidnapped two hundred thirty six persons and assassinated hundred ninety three that year political killings in the south would continue to mount and the local communists or viet gong would step up attacks on south vietnamese armed forces the central committee of the lao dong party in north vietnam convened in may nineteen fifty nine it decided to continue the national democratic revolution in south vietnam and to use force to overthrow the feudalist imperialist regime in order to establish a revolutionary democratic situation and create the conditions for the peaceful reunification of the fatherland. This signaled the beginning of warfare in South Vietnam and the resumption of warfare in Laos, both of which coincided with Chinese probes across the border of India. The People's Army of Vietnam, commonly referred to as the North Vietnamese Army, sent several combat units to drive the Laotian military from the border between Laos and South Vietnam. In their wake came transportation units to set up relay stations for a build-up and infiltration into the two countries. The Vietgong opened guerrilla war in September 1959, when they ambushed two Vietnamese army companies in the marshy plain of Reeds southwest of Saigon. In October, they attacked a small force in Gien Phong province. In Cong words, the armed struggle was launched hanoi's policy directives the growth of north vietnamese army activities and a marked increase in confirmed infiltrations into south vietnam made clear hanoi's declaration of war on the republic of vietnam and the commitment of its political and military apparatus to that end to american authorities in saigon optimistic assessments obscured the full dimension of the threat while his government was apparently stimulating economic growth and internal stability president closely controlled its intelligence activities often for his own political purposes he had little knowledge of gong leadership tactics organization logistics and plans as a result u s assistance programs in 1959 and 1960 were oriented less toward internal threat in south vietnam than toward the overt threat presented by communist activities in laos and particularly in the sparsely populated central highlands of vietnam adjacent to the laotian border Yim had been interested in the latter area since 1957, when he conceived a program for building agrovilles or new communities, around Pleiku, Kontam, and Bangmeitog. Without American assistance funds, Yim settled farmers there on new agricultural lands so as to strengthen security. By February 1959, he had established 28 outposts, and on July 7th, he announced an expanded program to create more prosperity and density centers in exposed rural areas. In February 1960, the government of Vietnam wanted trail watchers and commandos along the border to protect these new settlements. Accordingly, the Vietnamese Ranger Training Center was organized at Da Nang. At this time, the Viet Cong were thought to number 3,000 to 5,000 full-time elite and regular troops, plus intelligence agents, recruiters, terrorists, service troops and part-time guerrillas. Because the authority to keep in South Vietnam personnel of the Temporary Equipment Recovery Mission who augmented the MAAG was expiring, the United States decided in May to double the MAAG component to 685 men. This was done in spite of North Vietnam's protest to the International Control Commission. Several U.S. Army Special Forces teams arrived during the month and Yim formed a Vietnamese Ranger force with a projected strength of 10,000 men. By then, the Joint Chiefs of Staff had directed the senior American officials in Saigon and Sinkpak to draw up a broad counterinsurgency plan as a guide to the Yim government and to the small MAAG in South Vietnam. Sinkpak's plan contained among its key provisions a Vietnamese command and control system to integrate military and civil counterinsurgency operations. A bona fide military field command might end President Yim's meddling in operational affairs. Also needed was first-rate, centrally controlled intelligence and counterintelligence within the Vietnamese government. Ambassador Durbrow believed these to be all-important. The problem was to persuade Yim to approve and implement them. Other proposed measures included better use of the Vietnamese forces to fight guerrillas without lessening their ability to meet an overt attack. Improved governmental financial procedures, border and coastal patrols to stop infiltration and outside support of the anti-government guerrillas, better communications nets, more attention to civil affairs and psychological warfare, closer planning for economic growth and political stability, and moving the Vietnamese Civil Guard from the Ministry of Interior to the Ministry of Defense. Army Lieutenant General Lionel C. Magar became the MAAG chief on August 31, 1960, He and Ambassador Duerbrau elaborated the broad plan and worked with Vietnamese officials during the autumn and winter of 1960. In October, General Magar recommended and Admiral Felt concurred in enlarging the Vietnamese army from 150,000 to 170,000 men. Duerbrau objected. A bigger army, he thought, would bring economic hardship to the country. He also desired to use the prospect of a greater military force as pressure on Yim for political reforms. To ease counterinsurgency operations, Yim transferred the Civil Guard to the Ministry of Defense in November, and in the following month, MAAG took responsibility for training and equipping it. Shortages in military assistance funds limited support to 32,000 instead of the planned 68,000 Civil Guard members. To USAF officers, the measures for Vietnamese stability were, as Major General Theodore R. Milton, 13th Air Force Commander, said, entirely dominated by classic ground-force thinking. The Vietnamese Air Force had obsolescent aircraft and lacked trained pilots and technically qualified support personnel. Yim had worsened the tight personal situation in August 1959 by terminating contracts with French air crews and service technicians who operated the Air Vietnam commercial airline. He replaced them with military flight crews and mechanics. After a mysterious crash in August, President Yim grounded all the obsolete F-8Fs of the 1st Fighter Squadron, then, in September, asked for jets to replace them. He pointed to the U.S. jets given to Thailand and the Philippines. Sympathetic, Admiral Felt had two T-33 trainers and four RT-33 photo-recon aircraft added in the military assistance program funding for fiscal year, 1961. These would be the beginning of a jet as well as a reconnaissance force. But the planes, while remaining pledged, were not delivered because the Geneva Accords prohibited introducing jets into the country. To replace the F-8Fs, the first notion was to make AD-4s available from Navy stocks. The Navy, however, could not forecast continued supplies for these obsolete planes. Thus, the program was amended early in 1960 to include AD-6 aircraft still operational in the U.S. fleet. The first six arrived in Vietnam in September 1960 and twenty-five more were delivered in may 1961 when in late 1960 some vietnamese army rangers were ready for field operations the h-19b helicopters handed down by the french to the first helicopter squadron were worn out maag secured approval for a hurried shipment of eleven h-34 c's from the army they were airlifted to saigon without renovation four in december and the others soon afterward the eighty sixes and h-34s had no immediate impact on operations. The high aircraft out-of-commission rates stemmed from poor maintenance and supply at Bien Hoa. Also to blame was the long pipeline time for processing spare parts requisitions through USAF logistic channels to Army and Navy sources. Yet between August and October 1960, the 1st Fighter Squadron flew 20 combat sorties. The L-19 liaison planes logged 917 combat hours the helicopters accumulated 166 hours on operational missions, and C-47s of the 1st Air Transport Group flew 32 sorties. Only five airfields were usable for AD-6 operations. No communications network served dispersed airfields, and President Yim believed that air units could not operate effectively from dispersed locations distant from depot supplies. The Vietnamese Air Force was oriented to the support of the Vietnamese Army operations but the ground troops gave little attention to spotting targets suitable for airstrikes. About 90% of the ground targets were located by Vietnamese Air Force observers who flew in L-19s based on the same fields as the fighters. Approval for aircraft to strike ground targets was required from province chief, regional commander, the Joint General Staff, and sometimes Yim himself. As a final guarantee against bombing mistakes that might hurt the government's image, Politically cleared and technically competent observers had to mark approved targets before airstrikes could be launched against them, a rule of engagement reportedly directed by Guim. The USAF team visiting South Vietnam reported, The high-level approval required for on-call fighter strikes, along with poor communications and or procedures for requesting strikes, builds in excessive delays for efficient use of tactical air effort. This is particularly true in view of the hit-and-run guerrilla tactics of the Viet Cong. Internal subversion in Southeast Asia still seemed minor in 1960. In comparison, China appeared to be threatening stability and peace. To counter this, the United States continued to rely on the presence of Sito and on the credibility of its own treaty commitments in the area to discourage Chinese adventurism. While the Chinese cited Nikolai Lenin to prove that war was useful for extending communism, Premier Nikita Khrushchev spoke to the United Nations General Assembly in September on the grave danger of colonial wars growing into a new world war. Sino-Soviet doctrinal divergencies came under debate in November of 1960 in Moscow. The apparent outcome was a compromise announced on January 6, 1961, when Khrushchev noted that world wars and local wars that would grow into a world thermonuclear war were to be avoided while national liberation wars through which colonial peoples could attain independence were not only admissible but inevitable and merited full communist support. Meanwhile, the Laodong Party in Hanoi had announced on September 10, 1960, the formation in South Vietnam of a broad national united front of workers, peasants, and soldiers dedicated to overthrowing the Yim government. Thereafter, the Temple of Viet Gong infiltration and insurgency quickened, Viet Cong units of 100 to 300 men began to mount raids around Saigon. Even more serious, Yim charged in October that attacks in the Kantom Pleiku area involved regular North Vietnamese military units operating out of Laos. This was aggression in the formal sense. The inability of the Yim government to deal with the Viet Cong sparked dissatisfaction within the Vietnamese army and led to an attempted coup on November 11th. A paratroop force seized government centers in Saigon prepared to attack the presidential palace, and called for Yim's resignation on the grounds of his autocratic rule, his nepotism, and his ineffective fight against communism. The chief of staff of the Joint General Staff led loyal troops into the capital and subdued the rebels on the following day. Although Yim's brother and political advisor, Moden Yu announced the introduction of some reforms, Yim remained reluctant to decentralize his authoritarian controls. Instead of delegating authority to military commanders, as Admiral Felton General Magar had recommended, Yim sought to enhance his position by fragmenting and dividing the military hierarchy. Yim made army regional commanders, later corps tactical zone commanders, independent of one another, but each responsible to him. Since he appointed and removed province chiefs, many of whom were military officers, Yim frequently gave them command over army units operating within their provinces. Hence, the field commanders looked to two superiors, their next higher military commander in the chain of command and the political military province chief. These tangled lines checked the quick movement and close control of units and reserves, including the employment of Vietnamese air force units. But Yim insisted on tight control of operations, chiefly those of the air force, because he feared a revolt or a coup against his government. There was also evidence that the Viet Cong benefited from security leaks at high levels, at times Gong fed false information into the intelligence system to prompt bombardment of innocent targets now and then a province chief requested airstrikes for his own private purpose for example in another province whose chief he disliked within this climate of suspicion local officials had to go on record as approving airstrikes flown in their areas of authority all this spawned complexities hesitations and delays Apparently viewing the November coup attempt as proof of massive discontent within the Republic of Vietnam Armed Forces, Hanoi swiftly set up a shadow government in the South. The National Front for Liberation of South Vietnam, NFL SVN, was formally established on December 20, 1960. Even though it embraced a broad range of non-communist and nationalist opposition to President Yim, the Lao Dong Party in North Vietnam ordered its operations. In Saigon, Yim and Nhu felt that American officials had favored the November coup, and relations with Ambassador Durbrow grew more and more strained. There was also persistent discontent in the Vietnamese armed forces, for Yim's promise to liberalize the government had built up hope among officers. His refusal to do so produced deep disappointment. By this time, warfare had erupted within neighboring Laos, On December 14, 1960, CINCPEC declared an alert for all units to comprise Joint Task Force 116 if the United States decided to intervene. Thailand was willing to transfer 10 T-6 aircraft to Laos in exchange for more modern T-37 jets from the United States. President Eisenhower favored a CETO reaction in Laos and Admiral Felt suggested offensive air action. But the CETO allies were less than enthusiastic. Upon direction from Washington, felt declared a higher alert for jtf-116 on december 31st and he requested a c-130 transportation squadron from the united states with the arrival of the 773d troop carrier squadron at clark on the 2nd of january the task force was fully prepared to assist the laotian government three days later president charles de gaulle made clear france's refusal to take part in a CITO intervention as instructed from washington Sinkpak reduced the alert on January 6th. The State Department said on the 7th that the United States would work with other free nations to pursue whatever measures seem most promising. Dispatches from Southeast Asia in 1959 and 1960 competed for attention with louder signals from regions traditionally more vital to the United States. In January 1959, Fidel Castro and his guerrillas became the government of Cuba. As the months passed, Castro's orientation and outlook grew ever more Marxist, a development that evoked the whole complex of policies and emotions arising out of the Monroe Doctrine. At the same time, Premier Khrushchev repeatedly drew attention to the precarious state of West Berlin, a small island in the sea of the Soviet-dominated Eastern Europe. In Southeast Asia, along the northwestern frontier of the Republic of Vietnam and along the entire western frontier of North Vietnam, was the Kingdom of Laos— This geographically vulnerable, largely unadministered, politically fragile country was an obvious avenue of approach for infiltrators from North Vietnam to the northern provinces and central highlands of South Vietnam. Given the difficulties of the Laotian government in making its will effective, a neutral Laos seemed to many U.S. officials only somewhat less a danger to Yem's government than did a communist Laos. All of these problems were weighed by officials who were very much aware that President Eisenhower's tenure would end in January 1961. As President Eisenhower later explained, he wanted to make no major commitment in the closing weeks of his administration that would obligate his successor to a predetermined course of action. Briefing President-elect John F. Kennedy on the 19th of January, Eisenhower emphasized that Laos as the key to all of Southeast Asia must be defended. If the Allies failed to do so, he said... Our unilateral intervention would be our last desperate hope. What happened in Laos, of course, had meaning for Vietnam. End of Chapter five: Read by Kat Din in Osaka, Japan.